All right, welcome to episode 40 of Seize the Moment podcast. Today we have a very special guest. Her name is Sky Cleary, and she's the author of Existentialism and Romantic Love and co-editor of the book How to Live a Good Life. She teaches at Columbia University, City College of New York, and Barnard College, and previously at the New York Public Library. Sky is also the editor-in-chief of the American Philosophical Association's blog, she ha- and she has a black belt in Taekwondo, and she loves scuba diving. Welcome, Sky. Thanks, Alan. Hi, Liam. Hey, hey, Sky. Thank you so much for coming on. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, the first question I'm going to ask is, I think that's pretty much the one that our listeners are going to want to know about the most. Um, so, like, for me as an existential therapist, people often ask me, like, what the hell is existential therapy? Mm. So, it's one of those things where it's like existentialism is such an obscure term that I would say the vast majority of people have never heard of. So, the kind of question is um, not only what is existentialism, but, like, how is it relevant to me? So, a lot of times, kind of what I find myself sort of trying to figure out is how to help people understand existentialism in the context of their lives. Mm. So for Sky to put that to you, right? How what is existential philosophy, right? And how is it relevant to our lives? Why should we know about it? Yeah. Um, so I mean, it's hard to to find what existentialism is because so many people have so many different definitions, and you know, it wasn't an official school or anything. Um, but there are overlapping themes. Um, things like the central theme is freedom, so acknowledging that we are freedom, and um, emphasizing the value of the choices that we make and taking responsibility for those choices. But knowing that also that kind of responsibility uh, can create a lot of anxiety. Um, but we need to do it because the reward is authenticity. Mm-hmm. So in a nutshell, that is what how I would describe it. Um, and why is it relevant? Well, I think that um, existentialism was a reaction to um, what Nietzsche declared as uh, God is dead and we have killed him, um, or her maybe. Um, so the existentialism was kind of trying to answer that question, you know, well, what do we do Next, you know, Dostoevsky, one of his characters, wrote, um, if God is dead, then anything goes. But the existential philosophers were like, well, no, because then we're just going to descend into anarchy. So um, what do we do with it then? And the answer is, you know, recognize ourselves as um, free and um and in um, and responsible for our actions. And um, but the problem is, and something Simone de Beauvoir particularly pointed out, was that you know there are a lot of limitations on our freedom, um, that or uh, like oppression and ignorance and poverty, and there are things like weighing on us that make it difficult for us to for us to choose um, in into an open future. So then how do we make sense of like, let's say authenticity and becoming, I guess, what you can call your authentic self in the context of all of these constraints that we have? Yeah, so it can be tricky. And I mean, I think one of the things that drew me to existentialism in the first place was um, the idea that, um, or the, I guess, becoming aware of the pressures around us, but also like the internal pressures that we place on ourselves that we may not be fully cognizant of, like the pressures that we kind of internalize. And you know, what I like about the existential idea of authenticity is that it's about Put, it puts the focus on being um, self-determining and um, and choosing uh, and working towards self-chosen goals, but also at the same time respecting 
freedom, not just only for ourselves, but also for other people because, you know, we share the world and um, other people exist and they're kind of a fact of our existence. So authenticity, I understand, is taking charge of our own lives and you know, doing what we think is genuine and right but knowing that it's not always easy to figure out what's genuine and right. Um, and that's why, you know, there's a lot of, well, Simone de Beauvoir wrote The Ethics of Ambiguity, emphasizing that, you know, situations are so complex and, you know, these decisions that we make can be very... That's, that's right, yeah. And right? I, I, yes, and I, I like how there's this sort of uh, metacognition that takes place. Right, we think about how um, our actions—not not only how uh, our own actions impact our lives, but how our actions impact the lives of others—and also thinking about what other people are thinking. You know, our thoughts in relation to theirs, um, how they feel, how how they're acting, and that's that's something that's very valuable in existentialism. Taking into consideration not just yourself and your your own. Um, feelings, wants, actions, beliefs, but also taking into consideration the other and sort of the feedback that you get from the other and sort of determining who you are in relation to the other. And that that's an interesting relationship that goes on there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Sky, it does seem like kind of with the existentialist that um, the idea or the main, I guess one of the main core tenets is that we are never alone. And it's not as though man, even though being, or man, woman, right, sort of being authentic, that we can never really be authentic on an island of our own. That we actually need people in some way to kind of validate our authenticity and to kind of give us an understanding of who we are. Yeah, definitely. And I like um, Jean-Paul Sartre, how he talks about this. And he says um, that, you know, there are a few different levels of self-understanding. So if we walk around in the world, there's, um, you know, just ordinary self-reflection. Um, like we wander down the street and think, oh, it's a lovely day. And then there's a much deeper self-reflection, which is, well, how do I feel about this day? Um, but then there's an even deeper type of um, introspection that can only be gained through other people. Like, well, how do other people see this day? And, um, uh, so it's, uh, yeah, and so he goes so far as to say that we wouldn't know ourselves without the other person um, because uh, it's like an idea that, um, you know, just as the eye can't see itself, you know, there's only so much we can get through looking in a mirror and, you know, understanding how other people view us just adds a whole, like, deeper level of understanding to our being. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that actually reminds me of a Thomas Cooley quote. Uh, I'm not who I think I am. I'm not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. Interesting. Yeah, so it's kind of like that, that it's, it goes with what you said. There's this sort of feedback that takes place mm -hmm. in where, you know, that's kind of how you know who you are in relation to others. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and even through the interpretation of how you see the other person seeing you. Well, yeah, because you, you can't possibly be in their exact shoes, knowing exactly what they're thinking. So right. that's why you can only know so much, right? right? There's, mm -hmm. there's still a little bit of separation there between you and like what they really think of you. Mm -hmm. But it's it's the best we can do. Yeah. And that's what's yeah. got... Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I was just going to say that it's, you know, it's difficult because you don't want to be completely defined by the other person because then you're going to completely betray, you know, 
your authentic self, but you also need to take into account what the other people think. Um, and you know, something else John Paul Sartre points out is that um, you know, he gives the example of uh, spying through a keyhole, mm-hmm. and you know, he hears steps behind him, and um, you know, he doesn't feel shame until like he sees himself through the gaze of the other. And um, but his point is also that if we don't know that person, if we don't really care about them, then we're not really going to know or not going to care what they think about us but the more we like that person especially you know if we love that person then we're real it really matters to us how they how they see us so like our relationship to the other person also determines um kind of how much we take their views into account of us that's why he actually said uh, hell is other people mm-hmm. So then how can we kind of strike a balance between the two, right? Sort of not caring at all what other people think of us and caring too much. What would that look like according to them? Yeah, it's really hard. I don't think there's a straightforward answer. And um, it's a like constant negotiation of, like, you know, because if you're all about being self-determining and not taking into anyone's view into account, then, um, you know, you become really, like, self-centered and... Uh, Narcissistic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but then if you're completely determined by what other people think, then you're kind of like a slave to the gaze of other people. Um, and so it's, I think it's a constant negotiation to try and figure out, like try and, you know, work our way in between both of those things. Mm-hmm. And what's so, go ahead. No, 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 I'll say that. Okay. <laughs> so what's so cool about Sartre, Sartre and de Beauvoir is, um, so like often, and I found this in, in my relationships too, I mean, to kind of be frank, is that sort of when um, previous years of dating where I would date people, right, we would kind of be on different ends of the spectrum where I would sort of try to stand my ground and I would say, no, I'm right. And then the other person would say, I'm right. Right. Um, and then so, I mean, objectively speaking, obviously this doesn't really make sense because we don't really know how to kind of negotiate a, you know, a relationship in any sort of manualized concrete way. And so, what I really liked about kind of um, your understanding of it and obviously also their relationship as it was, was the fact that they pretty much, they knew that. They knew that there was no blueprint for life, which is like this really another core existential idea. And so um, even though they made a lot of mistakes along the way, they kind of knew that there was no real right answer. So, I mean, I don't know, obviously, if they fought or not. I'm sure they did because it was a relationship. But what was so cool about them is them understanding that the differences they had were to kind of, the, um, they were existential in the sense that they were just an inherent part of humanity. It wasn't that like she's not seeing the right way or he's not seeing the right perspective it was essentially that no no no. did we just have different perspectives and now we have to negotiate and figure out how to make this work for the both of us so in your understanding what was their relationship like like how did they make it work um yeah i mean it wasn't perfect by any means um and i mean it's hard for me to judge that but there's been so much written about them and uh you know they publish a lot of their diaries and letters so it's hard not to you know pry a little bit um but yeah they had an open relationship and they tried to live their philosophies and you know they worked through their problems together with varying success um and I think um, one of the important things about their relationship, which I think is really important for people to remember, is that you know if you're free to choose to be in a relationship, you're also free to choose to leave. Mm-hmm. And so they, um, you know, never saw their relationship as a given. And I think that's a really healthy way to look at it. Like relationships are always contingent. Now. Uh, they actually made um, their relationship or they had a pact making their relationship primary and they said we can have, you know, contingent relationships um, outside of that. Um, and 
but I kind of see that as a little bit in contradiction with their philosophy because um, if they made their relationship fixed, then they weren't recognizing each other's freedom and the freedom to leave. But I think in practice, their relationship was still um, somewhat contingent. Um, and I think that's important not to let one another take um, each other for granted. Uh, so I think that's kind of a healthy way to look at it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, definitely wasn't fixed because they, they weren't under the whole marriage contract, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's actually something that's very fr- fascinating and refreshing about their relationship is that they still cared for one another. It's just that they also valued each other's freedom and probably being the time period that they were in, they would see other relationships, they decided they didn't want to do it the way other people did. Yeah. So, I mean, there wasn't a clear-cut way as to, as to how they should run their relationship. Um, so, obviously, they didn't get it perfect. But um, I definitely, I could definitely see why you drew inspiration from how, how their relationship um, was conducted. Because if, if you think about it, um, the whole, uh, you know, abiding by a contract... Um, or a sort of rigid structure that you can't really deviate from if your feelings change or emotions change or just after some time you find something else like different about the person. Um, It could be very restricting and lead to a bad relationship ultimately. So I feel like they were just trying to find some way out of that trap by doing it the way they did. Mm -hmm. So they didn't figure out the perfect way to do it and of course, um, existentialism isn't a prescriptive sort of philosophy. Mm-hmm. But what's fascinating about existentialism is there's sort of an opening in existentialism to attempt to try to understand the other, to to really try to look at their perspective while being aware of what it is that you want. And as we discussed earlier, kind of negotiating how you want to conduct your relationship yeah yeah mm-hmm. and I think that's important um, and you know the reality is that you know almost 50% of people get divorced anyway now so it's not like they're really taking this um, marriage commitment seriously mm-hmm. um, and you know Simone de Beauvoir said you know she doesn't think anyone should be bound to another person um, out of anything other than love or because you want to be with that person you know you don't shouldn't have to be with someone you know because you know of a certificate you know that's a kind of um, an oppressive way to look at it um, and it's something that's oppressed women especially for thousands of years um, uh, and they didn't have a choice often whether to go into a marriage and certainly rarely to leave a marriage um, and so I think you know marriage is kind of a, a a bit of a hangover, um, but you know, at the same time, I think there's still a lot of uh, value in marriage. And the reality is, they, she and Sartre, did kind of have like a marriage. They didn't have the certificate, but for all intents and purposes, their relationship was very much like a marriage. Um, so, I mean, I'm not sure what the what the alternative is, but I think it is important to, you know, if you are going to get married, to recognize that it's not. Um, something that is, I guess, um, should bind you forever. Um, actually, I could kind of, um, I, I think I might be seeing where you're coming from. Uh, it's, it could be something that you might do, like, culturally, maybe, or maybe just something to just add some sort of structure yeah. to, um, 
to your relationship as, as time progresses. And there is something to having a structure. Um, it does kind of let you know where, where some, like by putting a label on something, yes, it is kind of, it is restrictive and it, it does sound like something that's static, right? right? However, it also provides kind of an understanding of your place in the relationship or, or the other person's place as well. And so in that sense, um, there is something to marriage that's very interesting in, uh, in that respect. But as opposed, but that the part of it that's restricting as I'm not kind of lost my. It's okay. I think what you guys are pretty much getting at is that it has to be an agreement that the marriages themselves aren't really bad, right? It's just that the thing is like when you look at the era, it seemed like a lot of people, well, a lot of obviously people, and then a lot of sort of communities and families had the sort of um, the shackles of marriage, right? Where they pretty much made, um, let's say, kind of especially when it came to women, right? Women had these expectations of when they were supposed to be married to whom they were supposed to be married to, and so when I was when I was listening to the both of you, I was thinking of the story, um, so in the Victoria era during Sigmund Freud's time so when they're like in psychology classes one of the first cases that they usually give us is this case of Anna O. so I don't really remember her real name but she was actually the founder of social work and she's considered to be like the first female psychoanalyst so she was actually not um, a technically Freud's patient so she was the patient of Freud's predecessor Joseph Brewer mm -hmm. and then so she actually fell in love with him so at the time right so during that period pretty much the relationships were kind of stale and you know kind of women and men were sort of compartmentalized women mostly at work and they were kind of more business oriented and you know kind of women were like the stay-at-home moms and so the expectation was that you know the father was very stoic not in the real sense of stoicism i mean like you know very sort of emotionally detached and so you know kind of the wife was a pretty much expected to take care of the emotional needs of everybody in the family except for herself and so during that period right she ended up seeing joseph brewer for psychotherapy and she was given the term um hysteria right she was hysterical right you know because god forbid this woman has her own needs right she's just crazy and so she ended up falling in love with him and so the story goes that he actually ended up falling in love with her too and so because they had this really deep and intimate bond and so in the story when they tell the story so pretty much she actually wanted him to like become kind of physical with her not sexual but she actually like requested that he start touching her as well and he's like oh no like I can't do that and so what was so interesting what was so interesting and I guess in a sense tragical about the story is that because their society was what it was and they had the expectations that they had um, so if they were obviously able to ever get together I mean first of all it was unethical in terms of like the relationship between the client and the therapist but then also on top of that so she was actually I don't think she was married he definitely was and she was i think maybe she was they were they had some her parents had somebody in mind for her or something or like she had a fiance i don't remember what the exact story was but so the point was that it was kind of like one of these sort of tragic like romeo and juliet type loves which wasn't that extreme but so pretty much in the story like she pretty she i think eventually sort of revealed to him that she was like really like intensely in love with him but he kind of like ran away from this like as soon as he found out he's like oh my god i gotta get the hell out of here literally ran away he actually like walked out of the session and like she never saw him again and so he went back to his wife and then his wife was really jealous like when she found out she's like you're never seeing her again like this is over and so what was so tragic about it is that she actually never married after that so she became this brilliant academic and intellectual and sort of like um, one of the prominent figures in the field of psychoanalysis but the idea was that she thought that this relationship was so phenomenal and so sort of like um, 
not necessarily idealistic, but so kind of anti-mundane is kind of the best way that I could put it, mm-hmm. that she knew that she would never find anything like that. And so the idea was that the kind of ideal bourgeois marriage at the time was so antithetical to this relationship that she had to this person, that she was like, there's no way that I'm ever going to find this again. So now I'm going to just devote myself to my career and my professional life. And she was like, she was brilliant. She was gorgeous. She had so much going for her. But the but the thing is, because of the way society was structured and the ways the kind of like um, pretty much the cultural expectations for men and women at the time pretty much made her feel pretty hopeless about ever finding anything close to that. Mm. So, yeah. <laughs> It's yeah. a really sad story. <laughs> yeah, but I think that kind of goes into sort of marriage and what it is sometimes, that people have these expectations of what kind of marriage is supposed to be like, and then what happens is obviously it's um, it, it's it, it's pretty much like, so people feel, when people feel like they need to marry someone or they need to be in a relationship, what happens is they often choose partners that maybe are not great for them. Like the story that you told, right, in the book about the kind of person you were with. Not necessarily for the same reason. But what happens, unfortunately, a lot of the times is that when there's sort of social and cultural pressure to get married is that people end up marrying the wrong person, right? They marry someone who just is not kind of an emotional fit, who's not an intellectual fit. And then it's like, for her, what happened was obviously she found this person who she did find to be a great fit. And so he challenged her intellectually right he was there for her emotionally but the thing is it's like based on kind of the choices that they made and sort of the norms at the time that they weren't able to be together yeah Yeah, and i think um going back to what you were saying about the right person you know there's also you know this idea that um the one is out there and we just need to find them and i think that's you know very destructive because there's really one it's really you know always happy and it's really ever after um and, you know, the, uh, this is the romantic ideal that, you know, we find this person and then we merge together in an ecstatic oneness. Um, and I think that's, well, and certainly the existential philosophers saw that that could be very destructive to relationships. Um, you know, Hegel said that when one consciousness meets another, they get into these um dynamics um like and this is the master slave dialectic so they kind of tussle until one person becomes the master and the other person becomes the slave and sartre talked about that and said you know and this is why um all love is doomed to kind of sadomasochism and you know where lovers are always going to be in tension um and uh um but simone de beauvoir i think and why i'm attracted to her philosophy is that she says you know why does everything have to be about domination and submission why can't we just sort of transcend you know these ideas of possession and you know respect one another um and instead of striving towards this oneness with another person let's focus more on friendship and having that be like a better and stronger foundation for relationships that can transcend those power struggles yeah yeah, and what was interesting about your husband was at the time when you first met him and you told him, oh, I'm going to be doing a PhD, and he thought it was cool, automatically, I mean, I understand, You first you said that automatically it's like you were in love, but at the same time, or that you wanted to get married right away, but then not exactly, but it was somebody who you had like uh, extreme compatibility with, and that was very refreshing, as opposed to the other guy before who while you were doing your MBA just wanted more time uh, from you and all that instead of kind of respecting what it is that is your passion or what it is that you want to accomplish in life and that actually that's definitely refreshing right if, if you can mm-hmm. tell somebody everything that it is that you want to do and they can respect you know that it's going to take some time and you won't be able to give all your time to them and they can respect that 
that almost makes you love them more, right? You would think you want all their time, that you would want all that time to uh, be in love with them, to share time with them. But um, when they respect the amount of time that you want to yourself or to accomplish certain goals, paradoxically, it kind of does something else to the relationship. Yeah. And um, it actually brings me to this uh, quote that you, you had in there. Uh, authentic love must be founded on reciprocal recognition of two freedoms. Each lover would then experience himself as himself and as the other. Neither would abdicate his transcendence. They would not mutilate themselves. Together they would not, muti together they would not mutilate themselves. Together they would both reveal values and ends in the world. For each of them, love would be the revelation of self through the gift of self and the enrichment of the universe, which is... That's beautiful, right? Because you're able to completely express what it is that um, is, is your deepest desire and what it is that you want to do. And they can do the same for you. Mm -hmm. And not a lot of relationships have that. A lot of it, I mean, either way, there's going to be compromise in the relationship and negotiating. And, but being able to go to this level of vulnerability and to be able to express yourself in this way, yeah. that's, that's amazing. Not, not everyone has that at all. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And it seems like, yeah, no. mm -hmm. go ahead, Scott. Sorry, I was just going to say, um, yeah. And what I like about this Simone de Beauvoir quote is that, you know, that emphasis on something that sounds much more like, uh, like a good, deep friendship. Um, and in fact, Nietzsche said, um, you know, something like, um, it's not a lack of love that makes for unhappy marriages, it's a lack of friendship. And I don't want to reduce love to friendship as such, but I do want to say that love with a foundation of friendship is, um, I think, much more powerful and can um, create much stronger relationships than the kind of traditional, you know, romantic ideal of oneness. Yeah, I, I mean, I wonder, right? It's like when it comes to kind of love, right? Were they ever possessive of each other, Simone de Beauvoir and Sartre? Oh, definitely. They were? Okay. <laughs> yeah. So it was just their sort of conception, right? Rather than the actuality, at least for yeah, the most I part. Mean, they weren't perfect and they yeah. said themselves, yeah, absolutely, we're not perfect. We've made a lot of mistakes. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, they were definitely both um, uh, jealous and possessive. Possessive, and in fact, Sartre said that um, something like, if um, someone asked him, oh, because he had you know lots of women you know in his circle, and they said, oh, and do your women have other men? And he's like, well, if they do, they don't tell me, and I wouldn't like it if they did. <laughs> um, but at the same time, and I think they they tried to be as um, generous as possible towards one another. Um, but of course they were human as well. Um, but you know, in the fact, I think they kept trying to bring it back to a foundation of, you know, the authentic love quote that you kind of read up before, which is, you know, respecting and acknowledging one another's freedom and trying not to be dominating and jealous and possessive. But what's also interesting is that Jean-Paul Sartre didn't necessarily subscribe to Beauvoir's kind of ideal of authentic love that you described there. I mean, he thought that you could never get out of this, um, you know, vicious circle of sadism and masochism and, and possessiveness. He thought that, you know, we're constantly stuck in there. Although he did write some notes like later on in his life that said, oh, maybe we can, you know, transcend that towards authentic love like 
Beauvoir um, talked about. But then he says, well, then maybe it won't be love anymore. So I think he never kind of resolved that tension. And it kind of seems like it's an inability of sort of trusting our own worth. Because, I mean, from what I know about, like, possessive love and, like, you know, kind of love bombing, a term that I've sort of written about and we talked about before, right, is that so people who pretty much do that, they don't really trust that the other person actually cares for them and loves them. So, I mean, the idea is usually is that, like, I have to be possess you and I have to know kind of everywhere about or sort of everything that you're doing because I don't believe that you'll actually kind of stick around. So they sort of become authoritarian figures in the relationships. And so, I mean, I think... This is going to sound super idealistic, and I don't know to what extent it's obviously possible, but there would have to be at least some level of disconnection of self-worth from romantic love, to some extent. Obviously, you're never going to get it fully, and it's probably not even going to be worth it if you ever, like, sort of just don't care about the other person's opinion. But I think that the ideal could be something in the middle, where you're sort of separating yourself from the person, where you're like one foot in a bit, one foot out, where on the one hand, you're saying that, no, I really need this person's affection and validation, but I need it to the same extent that I need it from my friends, my family, you know, my colleagues. Because if I don't, right, if it's sort of the opposite where I'm just fully sort of engrossed in this person's validation, then I'm actually going to need them to sort of validate me every single time that I feel like shit about myself, which is pretty much every time that you aren't getting the validation for a lot of people from that other person. For a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. But I think, I feel like awareness of that is mm -hmm. what is, is the way out, mm -hmm. actually. You, you may be able to, I mean, you're not going to do it perfectly. But I'm sure there is a level you can reach in a relationship where you you give, uh, for example, it's more about instead of um, needing to hear or needing to feel validated, you yourself just offer validation, mm -hmm. perhaps, and then the other person does the same in return. Mm -hmm. But it's not like it's not something that you seek out or you need to take or you need to have. Mm -hmm. I'm probably speaking idealistically because, mm -hmm. of course, you're not going to have that 100% of the time. Yeah. But I'm sure, you know, uh, when, you, when you study these sorts of things and, and you start to have an awareness of our, you know, where, where the pitfalls are and what can go wrong and what other people have done wrong, you, you can learn from that and actually have a very successful relationship. Or, or something that approximates uh, a successful relationship. Mm -hmm. I mean, Sartre and Beauvoir with all of their uh, faults and they didn't, their relationship wasn't uh, ideal, but they strived for something um, based, you know, uh, based on what it is that they already knew existed. They tried to strive for something that was beyond the traditional relationship. So that striving, that's what kind of made, not kind of, that's what made their philosophies beautiful. And, and also their, uh, relationship very fascinating and inspiring. It wasn't perfect, but even even now us discussing this, mm -hmm. there are people who will be hearing this and also striving to have something approximating a successful relationship, even with you know there being a fifty percent uh, divorce rate and um, a lot of people just marrying because of societal pressures mm -hmm. and all that. Mm -hmm. There, there's definitely there's definitely a way out of that traditional trap and pitfall yeah yeah
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that you know a lot of the um, traditional ideals of you know romantic love you know dates back to like Plato's Symposium. I mean, probably before that, but it was um, Plato that talked about it. How you know that myth of Aristophanes, where um, uh, we used to be these creatures with um, mm-hmm. you know, four arms, four legs, two faces, and one day we um, upset the gods, and so Zeus cut cut everyone in two. And ever since then, we've been kind of floating the universe, looking for our other half to merge back into like this organic unity and but that I think that's a very powerful myth and a very powerful way of talking about love because it suggests that you know there is a perfect match out there or someone who's you know, perfect enough to compensate for our deficiencies and, and excesses um, but it's also very damaging because it suggests that um, well, at least it, it puts a lot of pressure on our romantic partner to be everything for us, to to validate us, to um, to kind of balance us out. And um, I mean, this is something that wasn't around before we had romantic love. You know, people were married to one person, but then they had friends and, and family and stuff as well. But now, um, more often, we're you know, expecting the other person to to be everything for us and I think that's a lot of pressure and I think it can create a lot of um, uh, tension and unhappiness in relationships yeah because it seems like we're not really kind of respecting the other person's needs as well and so I mean the thing is the way I kind of see it is so I know like um, clinically speaking the sort of the idea is that it's sort of pathological if you need constant validation but I'm actually starting to kind of get the sense that all of us need constant validation so I think kind of the healthy form of constant validation is to sort of get it from different sources so because it's like I, I mean I hear it and I know people say like oh you shouldn't need constant validation but from everybody that I've literally ever met in my entire life we all need constant validation validation but the thing is that what happens i think like from what we're saying is that the people get into relationships and they expect their partner to be that one constant source of validation and what happens is obviously i mean the other person has other needs and wishes and they get burned out and they can't always be there to sort of pick you up right like i think we always need each other to pick us up but we need a community of people to pick each other up right it's not like um where it's like you have sort of on this pedestal you have romantic love and then there's everything else so the way i kind of see happiness right to whatever extent it's possible as a sort of end goal is that we would need a sort of community of people to help us right and i mean like everybody i mean family friends right a romantic partner children etc and sort of we kind of help each other in the way that we pretty much help each other like you help me i help you and we kind of work together in this sort of village mm-hmm. yeah i agree with that <laughs> are you aware of the work of esther perel oh yeah i um actually interviewed her about her book um state of affairs when it came out must have been a couple of years ago now. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, no, yeah, because this conversation is reminding me of her work uh, because um, especially nowadays we have the, as she says, the paradox of choice. There's so, so many options now in terms of who could be a potential romantic partner. Mm-hmm. And this is not something that we had years ago, especially before the internet, before Tinder, before this, before that yada 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 all that right mm-hmm. and so it's it's fascinating because it creates i wouldn't say creates problems but it definitely disrupts certain traditional um paradigms of how relationships are structured here's the thing for example if the at the moment that you already dislike something in a particular relationship because of this abundance of choice you might actually end up moving on to somebody else whereas uh, maybe years ago you would have either attempted to uh, 
either resolve it or maybe not even that nice of a resolution. It would have just been something where you just kind of settle and you, you stay in that sort of situation. We have an idea about that, yeah. Mm -hmm. Actually, go on. Actually, that was almost at the end of it. <laughs> yeah, so um, I don't know if you guys ever listened to Dan Savage's podcast, The Lovecast. Oh, so he's no, like, oh, he's like this really, oh, you know who Dan Savage is, right? Yeah. What? Okay. Sorry. So Dan Savage <laughs> is like this advice columnist. Um, so he's in the, he's like with his husband in an open marriage. So the way he can. Oh, this is the good giving and game guy? I good giving and game? Is no. he? Okay, sorry to interrupt. Maybe, okay. maybe. No, it's okay. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Um, I'm not sure. So I'm not going to say no. So the thing is like the way he kind of conceptualizes it and the way I sort of conceptualize this for like my clients, this sort of blows them away because they're like, what? Like, how, who thinks of it this way? I'm like, no, no, no. This is like you're supposed to. So the way he kind of sees it is so he's in an open marriage and he says, look, you're never going to find a person who's going to be everything that you need them to be, right? He's like, you're never going to find the one because it doesn't exist. So tough shit, right? That's just kind of how life is. But he's like, guess what, right? Your partner, right, isn't going to find the one in you either because you're not perfect either asshole and that's okay so the way he sees it he's like when we talk about like settling it's often obviously this really sort of toxic term and we're like oh i don't want to settle right i want somebody who's like you know the one or the person for me so the mm -hmm. idea is the answer is usually if not always right in the middle so there's no such thing as settling well i mean there is but usually when we say settle what we should be saying is settling for good enough another term that's like oh my god i don't want somebody who's just good enough but that's okay so the way he kind of conceives of it is that like if you're looking at it from a zero to a hundred right what would you say is like let's say the number um let's say what would you say is like the number that you would feel comfortable with in terms of a partner right she says for me it's like a 0.74 and if somebody asks him like why a 0.74 because he's like all of this is fucking arbitrary that's why he's like it doesn't really matter he's like you just pick a number and you go with it and so for him his ceiling is 0.74 he's like if i can find somebody who's a or rather his bottom i'm sorry so his minimum is a point his floor is 0.74 so he says if i find somebody who's a 0.74 i'm absolutely happy with that person he says could they be better sure and if they want like kind of we help each other grow and that's also wonderful but at the end of the day i accept the person as he is as a 0.74 so that doesn't necessarily mean that now like both of you become complacent what it does mean is that now that there's a floor for good enough so for him the way he sees it is like if this person is a 0.74 then i accept him as he is and i love this person as he is if we are in love but the idea is that i don't now try to change him because for me that's good enough i don't need him to change right that's sort of my rational side saying I'm never going to find the one and just because this person is missing the other 26% now doesn't automatically allow me to now try to force them to become like whatever I want in terms of that 26%. So for Dan Savage the idea is that like settling and being good enough is actually a wonderful thing. So again and this doesn't contrast in the way we kind of see it in society with growth that it doesn't have to be one or the other. You can have a partner growing and he says look that's actually that could even be a pretty or I'm saying this rather this could even be a part of that 0.74 right the partner's potential or desire to grow grow which is a wonderful thing but the idea again is that the good enough is actually not a bad thing it's not mm -hmm. black and white where it's either somebody's special and the one or they're just good enough and they're like awful no good enough is good enough yeah um so i don't know about the 0.74 uh -huh. thing but um i i think there's um there is kind of an existential idea in there as um so this idea that we're not fixed and we're not static and we're not 
uh, just looking for someone who matches us in that moment because it's the existential view is that, yeah, whether some of our actions, but we're also, you know, living in the moment and also projecting ourselves into the future and we're always becoming and always changing and that's part of the idea of uh, freedom. You know, we are freedom, so there's not, not like a fixed element to our being in that way. Um, and so... Coming when you um, enter into a relationship with someone, it's you know we're going to have different relationships um, with even with that same person at different times of our lives. And actually, this is something Esther Perel also talks about. She's like, you might marry someone three times in your life, and that person might be the same person each time. And um, you know, I like that way of framing it because it emphasizes that. Uh, you know, we, we are always doing new things and we are um, growing and changing constantly. And maybe we need to, you know, check in with our, if we're in a committed long-term relationship, we need to check in with our partner, you know, every so often and figure out where it's going. Um, and that reminds me of a Nietzsche quote where he says, it's one of my favorite quotes, and he says, we were two ships who came together to rest in a harbor for a while. And then, you know, we set off again and the, the winds um, blew us in different directions and maybe we made each other again you know maybe we don't um but that doesn't mean we should you know hate each other um and i like that because it says yeah we do come and we share you know these beautiful moments with people and sometimes we head off you know on our life paths again together um and uh ideally i guess for a long-term committed relationship you know we keep you know changing course together throughout that that relationship but if it if it ends up that our um, goals like push us in different directions, then then that should be okay. And it doesn't mean that you know the relationship has failed or that we're a failure or that the other person is a failure. It just means that you know we're human. And um, so yeah, yeah. And, it, and it's like the other person. A lot of times, well, I think all of us to some extent, right? Because we personalize the way I feel like a lot of people see it is that if love ends, that automatically it didn't exist. That it's like, it's not that love sort of either exists and that you guys just decided to part ways or the love sort of faded because of whatever reasons, but it's really just, oh, well, I guess it wasn't real and I was never loved. Therefore, that must mean I'm unlovable. Do you feel like that's kind of like something that the existentialists saw as well? Um, no, yeah, no, I think they would... Um think that that's crazy um, because love isn't again not a static thing but love isn't an is an action it's something that you do it's something that you express through through loving things that you do together um, and you know what's important in a relationship is to figure out well what are those loving actions that are meaningful to the two people in the relationship um, so and it's not that you know, yeah, love, it's not that love was never there or it, it wasn't true love. I mean, that's another myth, this idea that there's one true love or, you know, a true love looks like you fall in love and you stay together forever and that's a static relationship. But that's not at all, that's, you know, the antithesis of, of freedom. Yeah. And what I loved about well, your chapter in the book is when you were writing about your ex-boyfriend, that you pretty much, um, and another thing that I don't know if it's that common, where you pretty much said that you have no hard feelings toward him and that he was actually helpful for you in your growth. Can you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> um, Would that be okay? Yeah, I think so. Um, I, I think the idea, the idea behind that is that... Um, you know, actually, let me bring it back to something John Paul Sartre said, is that, um, you know, lovers, um, when they're together for a while, um, 
the, or not even when they're together for a while, but just lovers can sometimes become very complacent towards each other, either because they're trying to, um, like, keep the peace or keep the harmony. And um, and so going back to what we were talking about earlier, that um, the, one of the ways we get to know ourselves is through the gaze of the other. And if the other... If the other's gaze is like not really reflecting our being in any like meaningful way or just reflecting like saying, yeah, whatever you do is just fine and not challenging us in any way, then that's problematic. And in fact, Sartre says that, you know, sometimes enemies are better for understanding ourselves than friends because they challenge us to think about ourselves, you know, critically and um, they push us in ways that you know, people who are so close to us um, sometimes don't see. And so I think that, you know, what I appreciate about the existential view is that not only, you know, thinking about the gaze of the other of the person who's super close to us, but also, you know, who um, who hates us and what do they think of us or who doesn't like us. Um, and... I mean, I, I made the mistake of kind of reading some reviews of my work online um, recently. And I'm like, but I did that because I wanted to get that critical feedback and criticism for, well, how could I do better in the future? I mean, I don't recommend that, doing that but, um, necessarily because it can also be very depressing. But it can, like, in, in I think in small doses, it can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. well, and so... Yeah. Well, Sorry, I, go ahead. I, I think with the reviews, it's like, um, so the thing is, I think like they're okay in themselves, I guess, but the idea is like to sort of have a critical eye for them. Because obviously, you do, it means most reviews do really come from kind of a deep sense of hatred for the other person for whatever reason. So I think like the idea is like to sort of ask yourself, is like this person, like, what is he, okay, first of all, what is this person saying? Um, what do they actually mean? And then what is the evidence for what they're saying? And so, I mean, if there is evidence, it's kind of like going back to kind of Massimo's work with stoicism. I think he said this in his part of the book too. Where um, he's pretty much saying something along the lines of like, look, look, if somebody gives you a criticism, right, you would essentially ask yourself, okay, is it possible that that criticism is true? How do we know that? And if it's not, then okay, then this person obviously has some sort of axe to grind with me. And this is kind of irrelevant information to me. And I, I really, I kind of like that understanding of criticism and that conception of it. Yeah. yeah. So sometimes, sometimes it's just going to be like a like a Twitter troll. Right? Yes. Yes. You, they might not necessarily their feedback is useful, right? In general, because there there's somebody who's taken the time to review your work, decided to comment, right? So mm -hmm. In that sense, it's valuable. Yeah. But it depends, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you can tell what is a real critical review, and what's somebody just kind of hating on the work, yeah. right? So I suppose there is that distinction. Mm -hmm. But yeah, if, if you read too many reviews at once, it can be a little overwhelming. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> right. But I'm, but I'm sure you have positive reviews as well and plenty of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I do. But it's, it's sometimes the uh, negative ones that kind of cut deep. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, even like I said, you know, you... Um, I think it's important to take that on board and learn from it and grow from it or, you know, figure out what's important to let go of. Um, and, and the same in relationships, you know, understanding what went wrong in previous relationships and what was, you know, my responsibility. How could I do um, or how could I be in a loving relationship um, in a better way in the future? Um, and so I think, you know, I of all my past relationships, even if there's, even if we don't speak anymore, I still am um, grateful um, for, you know, the experience and the understanding um, 
that uh, that we that I, I gained from that. And in fact, that's um, something. Have you seen the Black Mirror episode "Hang the DJ"? Mm-mm, no. <laughs> Tell us about it. I just wrote uh, a chapter about it. So mm-hmm. it's um, it's about a dating app and. Um, Part of what it does is um, it simulates um, relationships, I guess, in in the, like a virtual world. Sorry, there may be spoiler alerts here, but I'll try not to do wait, too many spoiler alerts. Wait, but. is this the episode where like they try to match you with the perfect partner and you keep going through the list until you find your out? Yeah, 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 I did see that episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, and, you know, the thing is that I guess the, the idea is that they're learning in the background, you know, what's right, what works for you. Um, But I guess the problem that I have with that, that I wrote about um, in this chapter I co-authored with Massimo is that, you know, all that learning, you know, the people in real life aren't learning that themselves. So it's kind of happening without their knowledge. And yeah, they might be getting to a shortcut for finding someone who seems to be compatible, but even that doesn't necessarily tell them that they're going to be compatible in the future. So that's kind of risky. That's so interesting. And just to kind of um, go ahead, go. Yeah. Um, this is what's interesting is uh, the gratitude you have for your past relationships. Would you say that being able to maintain that sense of gratitude, even even say after a relationship um, really went awry, like it did it, it really didn't work out. Would you say that's what true love is it's like it it's not that sort of attached sort of love it's it's something that sort of still has this kind of deep appreciation for what you may have had for the person or at least wanting maybe just good things for sorry what you learned not just what you learned not just like from that perspective just also like i guess wanting good for them too and i don't i don't know What, what would you say is um if you had to have like a definition of what you think love without attachment would be or, or true love in your, in your eyes, what, what would you, what would you say that's like? Well, I, I would be reluctant to use the word true because it implies that there's one fixed or one real right way of loving. And I don't think that's true at all. And, you know, I, existentialism I think is not like the Buddhist you know view of, of detachment. And in fact, the existentialists, if anything, are the opposite, which say, you know, we love is um, passion for the other person and being engaged. And, and you know, we, I guess we find meaning in our lives through the attachments we have to other people. Um, and in fact, in one of Bouvard's novels, she, um, okay, so this is a spoiler alert, um, she gets to the end and she's contemplating suicide because she's like, you know, she's kind of older, she's not finding her job very meaningful, um, she thinks her husband would be happy with any other woman, um, and she suddenly hears her daughter outside and with her granddaughter and then it's kind of jolts her back into into the world and she thinks wow actually my death doesn't belong to me it belongs like other people will live my death but it's her attachment to her daughter and her granddaughter that kind of pulls her you know back into the world so i think the existential philosophers value that attachment much more than they would to say to be detached but that doesn't mean you should yeah I th- but going back to what you were saying, yes, it's important to, I guess, um, move on and, and detach yourself from, from past relationships. Um, but, yeah, I don't think there's any clear, hard and fast 
definition of true love, but, you know, the definition you um, spoke about earlier of authentic love, you know, I think that's a really um, beautiful way to think about love, you know, respecting and acknowledging one another's freedom and, um, you know, figuring out goals together um, and, you know, not trying to possess and dominate one another. Um, and so that kind of love, I mean, in that definition, Beauvoir talks about, um, you know, being together is an enrichment of the universe as well. So it's not just, you know, the couple like sinking together into this selfish, you know, solitude together, but actually acknowledging that where we live in relationship with other people and we have other attachments in the world. Wow. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. I, I almost, uh, I, in that, I almost found like an answer that's sort of in the middle there. Yes. Like sometimes there's a need for detachment. Other times, or most of the time, there's a need for a real engagement and being as attached as possible, actually. Mm -hmm. Because that's where the true passion is. Yeah. Which is, it's interesting. It's very interesting to think about. Yeah. And it kind of also seems like when it comes to like, I don't know, the perfect partner, the perfect relationship, the ideal is again, kind of going back to Dan Savage to find sort of this combination of a person who obviously a person who you accept as they are at that point, And then also somebody who wants to help you grow and somebody who wants obviously you to help them grow as well. That kind of seems like if there is an ideal that that would be it. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think? Yeah, definitely. It's like a mutual supporting of one another's goals. Um, yeah, not trying to say one person has to be dominant or submissive, but, you know, a, a mutual kind of, yeah, support. Yeah. And so, Sky, go ahead. I'm so sorry. Because <laughs> so, I can't see you. So no, because we were talking about, like, yeah. uh, Brene. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. we were talking about Esther Perel. Yeah, now Brene I'm thinking Brown. about Brene Brown. What about her? So, in terms of, um, so she said something that really, it was in a podcast with Tim Ferriss. Mm. It's about a week ago. Yeah, I listened like to that, that one. Too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what was interesting is she said, you know, there's this common belief that uh, marriage is always like 50-50. Yes. So, you know, this person's pulling uh, this much of the weight and this person's pulling that much and it's all shared. And, and she said, no, that's, that's a myth. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes I could only pull 20 and he has to help me pull 80. Yep. Or sometimes I have to do the 80 and he has to do 20. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes... I could do 30 and he could do 20 and we really have to talk you know? <laughs> yeah. or something like that, uh -huh. you know, and that's, that's fascinating too. Her, her method, um, if I could remember correctly, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, Go for but it. the idea was, it goes back to what we actually were talking about earlier about negotiating. Mm -hmm. She would just fully disclose what it is that's. Uh, going on in her mind or her uh, first she would say something that's good that her husband did mm -hmm. and then maybe then talk about um, something else that she needed to have done or needed a little help with mm -hmm. and he would uh, he would do the same thing in return and they had sort of this structure for how it is that they gave each other criticism yeah. and how their partnership worked and um, I, I kind of I really like that because also she's She's like a world-class thinker in, in regards to relationships. Right. So when I'm thinking, you know, who, who should I listen to <laughs> about this kind of stuff? Like her, her method was interesting. Tim Ferriss himself also had his own uh, with his uh, girlfriend that he does. Can't remember it. I guess I have to rewatch it. But something similar, I assume? Something similar, yeah. And I think pretty yeah. much we're all saying the same things. It seems like the most important thing, or the most important facet of a relationship is literally an understanding that a person cannot be everything for you all the time. 
Yeah, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, since you mentioned Buddhism, I think this is like a really great sort of pivot point now. So in kind of Buddhist understanding or Buddhist philosophy, right, the way they kind of conceptualize meaning is a detachment, right? Sort of obviously kind of um, not necessarily a reincarnation that's more Hindu, right? The way they kind of conceptualize life is sort of this rebirth of karma that obviously ends up in nirvana, right? So for them, sort of the purpose is detachment, right? There is a meaning. And so Sky, from the existentialist perspective, right, how do they conceptualize purpose? Like what does meaning look like to them? So, I guess meaning is, um, you know, it's complicated. First of all, it's up to us to decide meaning. Um, and, you know, they most of the existential philosophers come from this understanding that, you know, we live in, you know, there's no given meaning in the universe themselves because God is dead. Um, so, uh, and, and the existential philosophers all had different responses to this. So Albert Camus, for example, says that, you know, we have to live on the dizzying crest of despair and, you know, you can't just create meaning where there is none, but of course it's really hard to live like that. And even Camus actually found meaning kind of through rebellion. And, you know, that's what Sisyphus, the Sisyphus myth is. It's, you know, Sisyphus pushing his rock up the hill just to let it roll back down. Um, but he is, you know, rebellious and he finds meaning in his rebellion. And because to be melancholy is to let the rock win. Um, and so that's why he says we have to imagine Sisyphus happy. Um, so... Kierkegaard, for example, took a leap into Christianity because he thought, well, Christianity promises eternal happiness, so who doesn't want that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, you know, Sartre, for example, uh, he kind of leapt into, well, he flirted with Marxism, but I think ultimately he leapt into, like, whiskey and women and writing. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> but, um, that sounds like a good life. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think the point is that, yeah, I mean, there may be no stable foundation for us to, you know, create meaning. There's no, you know, guidebook or, you know, the guidebooks that we do have, like the Bible and stuff, you know, they're kind of suspect. Um, but, yeah, it's I think meaning is, at least in the existential view, you know, up to each of us to decide. And that's a really, it's a really tough choice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I had a friend, uh, so I don't know if I still subscribe to, I, I like this idea, I've integrated it into my own personal philosophy, but he had this thing he used to say where, uh, to deal with the, ex uh, this is how he dealt with the absurdity of existence, mm -hmm. he would take the absurdity of existence and shove it down, uh, shove the absurdity down existence's throat, like it, kind of his own life was sort of a rebellion against the absurdity of existence, mm -hmm. he would be as absurd as he felt life was, mm -hmm. which when I first heard it, I thought that was very powerful. Mm -hmm. Like even you could see me kind of emoting like, I, yeah, but I don't know if I still subscribe to that I, among, I have a bunch of ideas about that. I don't know. What, what do you think about that? Well, I do have a question. So Sky, what yes. did Cam, for Camus, what did rebellion look like? Do you hear us? Well, it's, um, sorry. Oh, no. Oh, I think the time there's is a long. delay. No, go ahead. Okay. No. Oh, so yeah, there's a delay. Um, no, so for Camus, yeah, what did the rebellion look like? Yeah, I'm not really a Camus expert by any means, I but um, I think it's really to live with lucidity and vitality and um, just in terms of whatever, you know, our rock is, you know, we've just got to, you know, keep pushing it. And I think, you know, I do like Camus' approach because, you know, some of us, you know, um, you know, we have to go, go to work every day and, um, you know, we tend to go on autopilot and, you know, that can seem pretty absurd and stuff. But what's important is, you know, to, um, 
you know, just recognize that absurdity, but to, I guess, live in spite of it and, you know, think about look for meaning, you know, where we can and look for, you know, I guess, joy where we can. And so how would you say, I mean, obviously this is going to be a bit of a complicated question, but like, and let's say the context, like we talked about before, right? Um, sort of this kind of um, term that we haven't used here yet, but pretty much what we alluded to in the beginning of the show, something that de Beauvoir called facticities, right? So um, the facticities of life are pretty much these sort of givens of existence, right? The ones that we can't really avoid, like kind of our upbringing, right? The parents that we had, um, pretty much the community that we were raised in, um, whatever sort of traumas that kind of, you know, we experienced. So how would the existential sort of view responsibility in that context, right? How can sort of one sort of either create, I guess what's called post-traumatic growth or decide for themselves that they should take responsibility in that kind of context where it's obviously often so debilitating for people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I mean, I can't think offhand where they specifically uh, talk about that, but certainly they, um, the existential rec- view recognizes that, you know, the world is filled with tragedy. And in fact, the philosophy became popular um, around, you know, World War Two, where you know, this, um, you know, absurdity and tragedy, like every day, um, and uh, you know, often you know, people were being tortured, um, and you know, they came up against really hard questions, like, you know, do you, you know, betray your friends and, you know. Um, give away information or, you know, how do you, you know, deal with that if you do. Um, yeah, so I guess it, in terms of your question, like facticity, um, yeah, so they acknowledge that, you know, we're thrown into the world. There are certain facts that we we can't change, um, like, you know, where we can't choose to be born for starters, um, can't choose who our parents are, um, but the existential project is kind of transcending those facts and pushing ourselves, you know, into the future. Um, and uh, it's, I find this in some ways it's similar to the Stoic view, like trying to figure out what you can control and what you can't control. But at the same time, the um, existential view is much less of a, like a distinct dichotomy. Um, and so on a personal level, I think it's like constantly, you know, trying to work out, you know, yes, what we can control and what we can't. But in terms of, you know, on a broader level, I think if we're talking about injustices, like during World War II, then I think especially Beauvoir um, would say, you know, we have a responsibility to step up and kind of do something about it. You know, she has this quote that says something like, um, immobile or in action, we always weigh upon the earth and even refusal to act or refusal to speak is a choice. So doing nothing is still a choice. Um, and she says, you know, it's an impossible escape. Um, so the point is that, you know, yes, we're always responsible for our choices. Um, and you know, in, I guess in post-traumatic growth, it's, you know, yes, dealing with it on a personal level is, is, you know, one thing, but also changing the conditions of our lives so that those traumas and tragedies, um, don't necessarily happen. That's, that's important too. So that's where like her kind of social justice comes into it. Yeah. And I love that so much. It's like, because I mean, the idea is that so many things that happen to us, and I mean, not even just to us specifically, obviously, to people who've even been through worse sort of, um, I guess, tragedies in their lives. I mean, it's not fair, right? And so, I mean, a lot of times people think where it's like, it has to be one or the other. It's either life has to be fair, or we have to give up. And I mean, unfortunately, it's just, it's really, or at least it doesn't have to be that simple, where the idea is that like, even though you went through something that was really awful, and maybe even really gruesome, that just the way the universe is structured, if you do want to be 
have make or create something out of your life, it would still be your responsibility. With help, obviously. It's not that you have to do it on your own, but the idea is that you're really the only one kind of at base who can actually make something of your life. Yeah, and that's what I love about the existentialists. I mean, they pretty much, the fact that they pretty much, they understand that we have to take responsibility for our lives. And it's like, it's a bit of a no-nonsense philosophy, right? It's kind of like, it's 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 like we have to be the ones who sort of take control, right? And again, help is, it seems like within the philosophy that help is okay, but kind of fundamentally, right, that we're the ones who have to pretty much, and even in terms of the society, that we're the ones who have to kind of reshape the world in the best way that we can. Yeah, and it's really hard to do that on our own, and that's why Beauvoir in particular kind of emphasized, you know, creating solidarities and working together in order to challenge, you know, the structures that we live in that kind of facilitate injustices. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, I guess the question for me is like with Sartre and Beauvoir, right? So with his understanding of radical freedom, did he ever actually change it? Or did he kind of reconceptualize it after like, um, I guess, really having these deeper conversations with her? Did he still kind of hold on to it toward the end? Um, yeah, so he always said he would write, you know, a bigger work on, on that and, and ethics, but he didn't get around to it. Um, so he kind of, yeah, there are notes that suggest he was maybe um, reconceptualizing some things, but um, yeah, he and, you know, reconceptualizing in terms of kind of agreeing more with what Beauvoir was talking about mm-hmm. um, and acknowledging that there are, you know, limitations that, you know, structural limitations in our freedom and in fact one of the arguments that they had was about a harem girl you know who's locked you know in a harem she doesn't have many choices and Sartre's argument was that well even like that kind of cloistered life can be lived in several different ways but Beauvoir's point was like well fine yeah she's sure she's free to think as she chooses but unless she has the power to actually act on her choices then that kind of freedom is you know it's meaningless so she really emphasized, you know, the importance of, of power to do uh, or power to act in light of, you know, the, the choices that we want to make. And, you know, that was really what the second sex was, you know, very much about was like this, why have women been the second sex for so long? And, you know, it's because of these structures that kind of um, channel them into, you know, subordinate roles. You know, uh, I was just curious. Um, are there any other um, philosophies that you, how should I put this, subscribe to, or that you that you have interest in? Maybe maybe existentialism is the primary one. But is there anything that you like about other philosophies that maybe you kind of integrate into your own personal one? Um. I mean, there's there are a lot of different things about different philosophies that I like, and I don't. I haven't personally come up with like a comprehensive philosophy myself. Um, I kind of see it as a work in progress, and certainly I like a lot of the existential ideas. Um, and you know, I think I very much like the. I mean, I like the Buddhism and you know how it aims to you know relieve pain and suffering. Um, but I also like things like you know effective altruism, which is a very um, kind of action you know based philosophy and really um, focused on you know it's probably one of the philosophies that's really making a big difference in the world. You know, thinking about you know encouraging us to. Um, choose or utilize whatever resources we have available to actually make the world a better place. So I really admire those more. And that gives a much more concrete um, path to actually doing something than, say, existentialism would. Um, So, 
Yeah, and it, I mean, in the book, How to Live a Good Life, I mean, there are 15 essays in there. And I'm like, you know, I was like looking through and <laughs> thinking, you know, they all have um, parts that are really appealing. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's really hard to choose just one, actually. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I noticed. Yeah, while reading the book, there were, like, for example, Stoicism is fascinating. Existentialism mm -hmm. is fascinating. Buddhism, you know, it's, yeah, all, it's he, all... He loves Buddhism. Well, not primarily, but I do. Yeah, I, I like Buddhism. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. Personally, I, I wonder. I, I mean, I, I tend to integrate certain ideas from every single philosophy. Mm -hmm. I think so, everybody does. I hope so. Yeah, or most people do. I, I definitely like that with therapy. Like, technically, nobody's really like with therapy a predominantly like either CBT or psychoanalytic therapist. Like, we all kind of integrate different skills and different methods, and I think we do that with our philosophy of life too. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> you know why I say I hope so? I bet you somebody does exist that no, is very... I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> like black and white thinking uh, like, no, this is the way. Yes, right. I'm sure there are definitely people like that. Yeah. And then so Sky, one of our final questions is going to be in terms of existentialists. How come you can't actually call yourself an existentialist? Well, it's not that I can't call myself an existentialist. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, not you, not you in particular. I just mean like how come an existentialist <laughs> doesn't... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, it's because it's very, you know, slapping a label on something. And that was something that the existential philosophers kind of veered away from because they're like, you know, um, you know uh, human beings are so complex, you know, they can't necessarily be, be defined by, by one specific thing. And, you know, the existentialist is um, kind of taking on a role and implying there's a specific set of, I guess, rules or doctrines or something to subscribe to. But there isn't that in existential philosophy there's just some themes and it's it's kind of always um you know someone who looks at or tries to live by existential principles or is always trying to um you know figure out what works and and, and what doesn't um so it's it's just it's really complex and it's also one of the reasons why i think they you know would have hated your know, personality tests and stuff that put you into one of 16 boxes yeah. and things like that they're like no life is really complicated Wow. And it kind of seems like a core, sort of one of the main, I guess, aspects of it is literally accepting just the uncertainty of life, mm -hmm. right? Dealing with the dread and sort of facing it head on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I agree. Alan, final questions, thoughts? Hmm. Well, it does seem like, yeah, change is something that is constant, mm -hmm. right? So, of course, you can't put anything into a label. It's, you, you could just as, you know, just for the... Uh, just to be conventional in language, using language and hoping to understand each other. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, I feel like that's a, that's a trick that most people kind of fall for, mm -hmm. that there are these static, like, objects that always, you know, you kind of... Like, for example, even in terms of identity, mm -hmm. right? A lot of people may think... Uh, they are this person or or uh, or believe in certain ideals and kind of fight and defend them to the death mm -hmm. but it's if if another um, perspective exists mm -hmm. right I mean how should I put this to you the fact that that there are other perspectives right tells you that there's not only one way to think about something right. that there's there's this uh, thing called pluralistic thinking right mm -hmm. That there's multiple perspectives, there's multiple ways to understand things. Mm -hmm. And knowing that there is no um, there's no finite sort of way of looking at things. Or a true is, answer. Or true answer. Mm -hmm. That's that's very important to know. Because anytime then you hear something that's kind of um, 
conflicting or something different than what you're used to hearing, mm -hmm. you you may actually be open to hearing it if if you if you're aware of these things that there there is you know other per, other the other perspectives. Yeah, and yeah. what the book makes clear is pretty much is that existentialism is an inclusive philosophy. That essentially what you can do is you can take that philosophy right and kind of it fits with other ones except for like it seems like the religious ones are um, kind of um, let's say contradictory. But outside of that, like pretty much existentialism and Stoicism makes right sort of existentialism and maybe even to some extent Buddhism. But what's so cool about it is that pretty much it allows you to see that life in itself is just this one big kind of ambiguous thing that we really have to just try our best to make sense of knowing that there really is no sort of grand truth or in terms of like how to live a life or how to live like the good life there is no actual sort of blueprint that's really concrete and kind of a step-by-step -step thing yeah. yeah but though and you, you know you said um you mentioned religions but i mean my soul was catholic and kierkegaard was a christian so in fact like it can you know gel with those kind of ideas but you know i agree with what you were saying that you know there's no set prescription um and you know jean paul sartre described it as more like uh, guideposts i'm like you know th that's the sort of direction you should be heading in or that's like these are some things you should think about um you know don't follow us necessarily we're not role models but um you know we've thought about this a lot and maybe you should think about this sort of thing too yeah you know actually there is something i had to ask shoot i can't believe i didn't ask this before okay so you have a black belt in taekwondo right <laughs> when when did that like when did you get into taekwondo it was a long time ago. I'm very rusty now, um, but I still practice with my my son. He's nine, um, and so I still go along to family classes sometimes. But uh, yeah, that was a long time ago. Um, and in fact, I started it because my brother started it, doing it. And um, you know, we were like young, and we used to fight a lot. And then I realized, oh my goodness, you know, he can actually kill me. <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, I better keep up with this. Um, and then we realized we could actually kill each other. Potentially, so um, our relationship has um, was uh, amazing after that. So we we just got along great. So. <laughs> Now you know. No, because it's such a it's, a, it's a high level. It's a black belt. It's mm -hmm. not like, yeah. you know, that that's why I'm thinking like, whoa, that's like a high level of mastery in something. So. Wait, how long did you have to practice for it together? What's the timetable for a black belt? I want to say, I mean, it might have been maybe five or six years. That's a long time. Wow. But I can't remember exactly. Yeah, a few, practicing a few times a week. Yeah. So, yeah. Wow. All right, Sky, thank you so much for coming thank on you. today, man. What an insightful show. Thanks, Leon. Thanks, Alan. So if we were to find you, right, so where can we find you on social media? Um, well, I'm mostly on Twitter, uh -huh. so at Sky underscore Cleary. Uh -huh. um, but I also have a website, um, www.skycleary.com. Uh -huh. <laughs> so, right. yeah, that's the main places. All right, thank you so much, Sky. And obviously, we'll be in touch soon. Okay, thank you, both. See ya. Okay. Bye. <laughs> All right, guys. Wow. That was awesome. Super insightful. Sky was very cool. Yeah. And guys, this is the book, How to Live a Good Life. <laughs> That's right. You can find it on Amazon. And yeah, I believe other, other books platforms. Well. Pretty yeah, much absolutely. just Google it, Amazon. I think it's on, so the it's vintage. So you could definitely find it at the vintage publishing house, most definitely. Absolutely. And if uh, you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And at Seize underscore podcast on Twitter. Mm -hmm. Please like and subscribe. Hit the bell on YouTube. Hit the bell. Yeah, and also find us at the O4L Online Network. So you can find us under the podcast section where it's Season Moment Podcast and The Dinner Club.
Absolutely. And look forward to episode 41 next week. Take care, guys.